0: There's so many things that I had to overcome just to be where I'm at right now that, you know, a doctor that I can crush like a can telling me that I'm fat and stupid is not going to be the thing that's going to break me.
1: We all carry the burden of feeling not enough. All of us, unaddressed, this burden of not enough can fester and infect how we see ourselves and the world around us. The burden of not enough impacts how we lead and our capacity for vulnerability. The burden of not enough dictates what we do with our time and our money. And the burden of not enough informs the way we care for our bodies and how we view what it means to be healthy and desirable. Now this burden is directly linked to shame, which wreaks havoc on your confidence, on your boundaries and your sense of contentment. When you don't feel worthy, you delegate your worthiness outside of you. So you end up chasing your worthiness in all areas of your life. And no matter what you achieve or how much money is in the bank, it never leaves you feeling, well, enough. I'm Rebecca Ching and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I suspect you've had a moment early in life when you were rejected for just being you. Now, usually this happens when you're young, sadly, and and typically, most commonly, I should say, in school or in your family through experiences of humiliation, bullying, abuse, or neglect, just to name a few. And these experiences rob you of the truth that your worthiness and enoughness is not something to be earned ever. Fact, you are worthy. Fact, you are enough. No. Okay. I know these statements have been used as hashtags and put on beautiful Pinterest images ad nauseam, but y'all, I kind of get why. Once we lose connection to our worthiness and sense of enough, the striving for approval and belonging kicks in, and we long to find the reassurance that we are enough, as we are, but often in all the wrong places. Now, I think it's important to note this experience varies depending on the identities you hold, and the more intersecting identities you have, the deeper the rejection and pain can go. So I know for me, as a straight, white, cisgendered woman, much of the baggage and burdens I carry are connected to these identities I hold. So growing up in Minnesota in the 80s on a healthy diet of MTV, politics, and pop culture riddled with mainstream misogyny, I received the messages early on about what was expected from me as a woman. Now, my freckles and curly red hair were fodder for jokes and teasing as early as preschool. And as I grew up, my curvy body and five-foot-two frame were in stark contrast and deemed by me deeply flawed compared to the usually white, supermodel, svelte, tall-toned, but not-too-muscular physique me and my friends worshipped that we saw in the movies and music videos, which we consumed on repeat. You know, I chased to find my worth and enough by trying to change what I saw in the mirror. I bought special creams to try and make my freckles go away. These like anti-aging creams. And I'm admitting this you. Yes, I added blonde highlights to my hair, but this is only after my brief flock of seagulls look. <laughs> and I was doing buns of steel on repeat, hoping I could flatten my butt, which there's not a lot of logic in that. And here's a doozy. I willed myself to be 5'7". I would tell my parents, I'm going to be 5'7", just because I decided to, my determination, because being 5'2 just wasn't enough. I was always determined, yes, but I could not fight genetics. (laughs) The mixed messages on female empowerment also left me seeing the female body as something to be consumed and objectified, feared and policed, instead of seen as enough, no matter the reflection and image in the mirror. Now, growing up and eventually studying the evolution and commodification of beauty and the beauty industrial complex, along with the dangers and impact of eating disorders, rape culture and purity culture, opened my eyes to some deep healing and awareness. And then becoming a parent only locked in my commitment to reject these ideals and speak against them only further. But I'll be honest with you, they still sneak up and try to chip away at my enoughness, even today. The experience of feeling different or othered is seared in our memories and held in our bodies. And a protective cluster of beliefs and behaviors take root to try and keep us from experiencing this pain again. But often the result of these inner protectors, like the inner critic or the imposter experience that we all know too well usually leave us feeling worse and further entrenched in feeling not enough. And our bodies are often the default of where this shame is directed. I'm hard-pressed to find people who are not struggling with not feeling healthy enough, skinny enough, attracted enough, strong enough. You, You get the idea. So often, even conversations with others is focusing on body critique or the food you eat or comparing others. That becomes the norm. Again, only perpetuating feelings of not enough in a never-ending vicious cycle. Now, while the burdens of shame and feeling enough are universal, the way it reaches and can impact people is not. And my guest today brings in his experience of being Black in a larger body to this conversation. Martinez Evans is a multi-talented leader and entrepreneur. He's a digital marketer, an author, a podcaster, brand ambassador, a marathoner who busts stigma and stereotypes at every race he runs. He's the founder of the blog Three Hundred Pounds in Running and the running community Slow AF. Now, 300 Pounds in Running started as a lifestyle blog and has since grown into this amazing online resource for those in larger bodies or those who are slow runners to become their best selves. And he's been featured in magazines like Runner's World and Shape Magazine, in addition to other media outlets. And he even has a book coming out soon, too, while gearing up for another very full marathon season. Now, I want you to pay attention to the origin story behind why Martinez started the blog and his business, 300 Pounds and Running. Listen to how Martinez uses his anger to inspire him, but also how he keeps that anger from turning toxic. And notice how Martinez describes the impact of being in a larger body in our culture and what he challenges us to do in all the spaces we are in so we do not perpetuate body shame. Now, please welcome Martinez Evans to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Martinez, welcome.
0: Rebecca, thank you for having me for the show.
1: So, I'd love to jump in and go deep, which is what we do here on the Unburdened Leader. And there's a quote from a Huffington Post article that you wrote, I believe at the beginning of the year. And you said, Other people's perceptions of me damaged my psyche. I believe that being fat meant I was worthless. I felt like my thoughts, feelings, and emotions were invalid. I was fat and it was my fault. And I'd love for you to tell me about the first time you remember connecting your personal worth to the size of your body.
0: Oh, man, like that that's a great question. And, and you even talking about that quote has brought me back to like that day when I found, first found out I was fat. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know, this, the story has is that I was in first grade and our teacher had us to like come to class and do like this show and tell of like things that you care for, or that you love. And in first grade, like I had this huge crush on this girl. And while everybody was going up to the front of the class talking about, you know, their family members, their pet, their favorite toy. I was like, I'm going to profess my love to this girl in first grade. So I got up there like chest and head held high and, and profess my love in the first grade to this girl. And her response was ill. Like you can't like me because your titties are bigger than mine. And like the whole class erupted. And the smile that I had on my face instantly went on to tears. And, um, The kids used to call me titty boy growing up because of that thing. And it was that day when I found out I was fat and it was almost like the day that opened the floodgates to, you know, what my worth was and, and tying that to my body because, Mm -hmm. because of that, like I, before that day, I went into this world just fearlessly, like not a care in this world, not a self-consciousness in this world, just me like living life and just doing it to the best of my abilities. And then after this day, like everything changed to me thinking about the clothes I wear, to how I look, to how I present myself. And it was all because, you know, it was like this secret that everyone knew except for me. And then when I found out the secret, I kind of conformed to these um preconceived notions that fall in line with you know, me being a fat guy.
1: Hmm. How does weight stigma and just the stigma around being in a larger body continue to impact you? Ooh,
0: we got longer than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> we got, as long
1: as you want Martinez as, as long as, as you want.
0: Worth. Um, <laughs> the way that it really Im- impacts me is that it's, it's, it's like all encompassing. It's, it's, it's like the air around you. It's the thing of when you go into a a space. So for example, moving here to New York city, it's the recognition of like the space that you hold up in this subway and trying to minimize yourself as small as possible. So you are not, encroaching and encompassing on somebody else's space. It's the, you know, going to a big box store and buying toilet paper and, and, and tissue and, and, and toothpaste and going into the men's section and thinking, Hmm, I, I think I might want to buy something as well. Like, let me see what they have on the clearance rack and not having anything in my size and being told that, you know, Things have to be special ordered or bought online when they have everybody else's size, right? It's the lining up at a start of a race, and you know, someone sees my size and think, oh, good for you. Like you're trying to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Uh, Um good job for running this marathon, and me look at them and say, This is not my first. I've ran over a hundred different races and nine to 10 plus marathons and that sh- that that look of shock on their face of like well if you ran that many races why you're why you're not smaller right it's the just being physically active in my body and just trying to you know incorporate movement in my body and people not respect it if i'm not doing it under the guise of losing weight mm. that's how being a plus size individual affects me and affects other individuals who are also plus size.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And I'm curious, you're an entrepreneur and a business owner. Why do you think this is an important issue? Really understanding weight stigma and what they and what leaders can do to keep their businesses and communities from colluding with the pervasiveness of weight stigma. Why is this an important issue?
0: Well, from an entrepreneurial side and just business side, we just want to talk brass tacks and dollars. Like it makes sense to provide clothing for plus size individuals if the data says that you know over seventy five percent of the uh, United States is "quote unquote" deemed you know overweight or obese, and stores and products are only catering to the twenty five percent. Like there's a whole. 75% of the United States is that they're missing out on. So obviously just from a, a economical standpoint, it makes financial sense for entrepreneurs, companies, and those of alike who are providing services to individuals who are straight size to provide the same services, clothings, and such to individuals who are plus size because it is, is, is as much as I want to say it, we are the majority <laughs> when it comes to this. So I would say like that, those are the things that, that comes to mind.
1: And I want to take it even in deeper, though, in terms of like businesses and organizations creating cultures that push back on weight stigma instead of collude mm-hmm. with it. What would you say to leaders and business owners on how they run their businesses and how they care for their staff, how they do community What would you want them to keep in mind around this issue of weight stigma so they can cultivate? They they don't want other people to feel like you did in first grade or at least continue to perpetuate this sense that, oh, there's something wrong with you because of how you show up in the world.
0: I would say the most simplest thing, but it's also this hard thing is is the same way that, you know, individuals are. Mindful to ask someone about their pronouns, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same care and thoughtfulness that you should have to a person of size. Period.
1: It, that seems so obvious, mm-hmm. and yet we're in a culture that's at, makes kind of sets us up to be at war with our bodies. Mm-hmm. And in fact, just you talked about the economics around clothing. There is billions upon billions of dollars spent every year on. Weight loss products, services, and supplements every year, enough for a small, the economy of a small country. Mm -hmm. So there's still this focus on the messaging of this is wrong, this is bad. So, how, yeah. And so I think to even like we think of like we're recording this at the end of the year and there's holiday parties. Mm -hmm. And this is also the pinnacle of everyone talking about their plans to change their bodies, you know, in the new year. And often they'll be like, group workout weight loss plans or companies are now having, you know, charging more for health insurance, depending on your BMI. So there's a lot of these things that are really not welcoming and not inclusive. And mm-hmm. what would you want to say to those who are in a position to push back on some of these things?
0: Um, so, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh i have to stop myself Rebecca
1: why don't stop don't stop
0: i felt the rant coming
1: on i want the rant <laughs>
0: yeah, i felt the rant coming on because especially when you start talking about BMI and now like how that's uh-huh. a, like how that's a pain point of like the, oh yeah how that's even a made up thing right and how that yep. was made up for eugenics And how that was only made up to have this thing of you know the the perfect human being and so on and so forth and even how the the creator of this said that he did not expect this to even be a a standard when it comes to uh, focusing on health but when you think about a science and how cheap the bmi is like how you know cheaply it is just to get uh, somebody's height and weight and then like this just becomes the golden standard in science is like mm-hmm. bullshit. So, you know, I I think just starting there, right? And then the next mm-hmm. thing is also correlating the thing with like health, right? And how there are, you know, factors that we can call like comorbidities or or like other types of factors. And like weight is just one of those factors, but it's not the end all be all to exactly to health, right? And you know, we don't talk about how physical activity has so many other benefits to your life and your body, right? It reduces anxiety and stress. You know, it helps with your A1Cs. It lowers your blood pressures, but instead we only focus on weight loss. And the thing is, you know, when it comes to modern day marketing, like, yeah, that stuff is not sexy, but it's the truth. Like, yeah, like exercise to just be healthy overall. Like if that was the, If that was the, you know, the end all be all, I don't think it would be as sexy as if like lose weight, gain confidence and change your life, you know, get that significant other and like all these other things that are like things that nine times out of 10 won't happen. And then if you go on this whole other thing about like just weight and, you know, the whole notion of like adiposity rebound and how, you know, most people who go on a diet, at least ninety nine percent of them get yep. way back, if not more. So I think more too, uh, yeah. The the system itself is just all screwed up, and I think you know we need to control Alt Delete and throw that bad boy in the trash because <laughs> it's 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 a notion that was there, and and yet, like, yes, it has brought in tons of billions and dollars to industries, and it's something that's off our like our deepest desires and I like, like they're preying on us. yes. and I think that that's the hard part to say like you know when you say what do you want to say to those individuals? I want to say like everything that you heard about weight is false. <laughs> For the most part um a larger individual is not lazy. they're they're not uh, slobs. They don't eat up everything that's on the table. you know it might it just might just be genetics. There's so many other factors when it comes to weight that, like diet and exercise, is only like I want to say, like, is it twenty percent? Like, we haven't talked about any of the other factors. I can go on for days. (laughs) So that's to say, I'm trying not to go on a rant because, like, (laughs) it's it's the thing of like, there's so many. It's like there's so many fires to happen when it comes to weight, weight bias, body positivity, body acceptance that you know, one concise sentence won't like solve it all. But there's so many other issues at play that we really need to think of or really take a step back and see what our own insecurities are about weight and weight bias and like somebody being plus size. Focus on yourselves first to really figure out what, like what that is. And then think about the whole notion of what you thought about this, throw it out in the trash and unlearn it. And that's why, you know, the whole statement that I made of, like, the the notion and the, the thoughtfulness that we are going in this, this age of, like, asking people what are their pronouns, how they want to be addressed. It's the same way we need to think about the thoughtfulness when it comes to, like, weight bias and some of the things that may first come to your mind uh, when you see a plus size person and those um, preconceived notions and just saying, stop, hold up. Like, who is this person actually is? versus, oh, this person's fat or plus size. So they're lazy. They are, you know, they're, you know, they're lazy. They eat up everything. You know, they're worthless. they are all these other things in comparison to somebody who's straight size.
1: Thank you for that. And I just, I'm grateful for what you share because you're right. The BMI is a marketing tool. And in fact, it's making us sicker on how it's used and it's weaponized. And I really appreciate the message to those listening that we need to do the U-turn a while u turn and get clear on our own biases around weight and size and really think about how we're colluding and supporting hurting and harming humans that there is a human there. And so, and then what are we, If I guess for me too, is even what are we watching? What are we reading? Who are we listening to that's supporting those biases versus Expanding that our definition of health—it's so narrow, and it's been weaponized, and people have made so much money in a way that really is doing such immense harm. So I really appreciate you adding to that conversation.
0: Yes, and you know, thinking about that, there was there was a agent that I met with. I don't know; it's been about two years ago. And you know, I was telling him about my story and like what I'm trying to do because you know I'm trying to get represent. I was trying to get representation. And he was like, yeah, you know, I don't think we'd be a good fit. And he's like, why? He's like, because you understand the the truth about like weight and weight loss. And since you know that you're not going to promote like the stuff that mm-hmm. I can get for you. And if and then, he, you know, the conversation went on on, on like, well, if you ever decide to do a weight loss journey mm-hmm. again, or want to get on a weight loss kick, like hit me up because. Ugh, yeah. yeah. Like you'll be a millionaire. Like you'll be a millionaire instantly, but like what you're doing now, like that's, that's not profitable to me.
1: Oof. What you're doing now is not profitable. So that's a good segue to my next question, Martinez. So you have a business mm-hmm. called 300 pounds and running, and you've talked a lot about this. It can be traced back to feedback you received in a doctor's office while caring for some reoccurring pain, I'd love for you to walk us through what happened during that doctor's appointment and how the resulting anger and humiliation spurred the beginning of your company.
0: Yes. So listeners, close your eyes. Listen to this buttery, (laughs) bare tone voice. (laughs) I want to take you back to 2012 and I'm working at Men's Warehouse. You know, you know that commercial. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Like, that's where I worked. Working commission sales on my feet, <laughs> eight to 10 hours, sometimes 12 hours a day, selling suits to your husband, your brother, your cousins, whoever would come into that store, me selling suits. So I'm on my feet, like I said, 10 plus, uh, 12 plus hours a day. One day I walked into the threshold of Men's Warehouse and I felt this sharp pain in my hip which led me to go to a doctor, which led me to go to another doctor who changed my life. And I'm sitting in the doctor's office and he comes in and this guy is, you know, maybe five, five, 125 pounds soaking wet, very thick accent. And he says, Mr. Evans, I know why you're in pain. And before that, you know, I was telling him like, yeah, you know, I play football, you know, I work, you know, at men's warehouse, you know, maybe this is an old football injury things of that sort right and he's like i know why you're in pain and i'm like what like we're gonna go get an x-ray or mri like do i need a hip replacement any of this stuff and he's like you're you're fat and i was like what he's like you're fat and then he goes on this whole tangent of like you're fat. You got two options. You need to lose weight, or you're gonna die. Your heart attack waiting to happen. You have a belly of a pregnant woman just going on all of these insults, and Oof. I'm a type of guy like you know, as I'm fun loving, but you're just not gonna talk to me any type of way. So, you know, sarcastically <laughs> I say to him like, "Yeah, like I hear all that stuff you're saying, but you know, I, I'm fit enough to run a marathon. I'm gonna run a marathon." And he just bust out laughing and he's like, you run a marathon. That was the most stupidest thing you ever heard in my life. And you know, I've heard in my life. And so now you're calling me fat and stupid. Like, wh- what else do you have? And we just continue to have like this huge argument, which is going back and forth to the point where I just stormed out the doctor's office. So as I'm driving home, you know, I'm ruminating about this conversation and I'm thinking about myself like I still haven't figured out what the hell going on with my hip. But I, I drive past this running shoe, shoe store and I made a U-turn and I went into the store and I said, I need running shoes and I need them now because I'm like, I'm going to run this marathon today. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, I'm going to run this marathon today. So get the running shoes. I go to the little fitness center and my apartment complex. I get on the, the treadmill um, and I'm sandwiched between like two people that I, I like to call gazelles. Like there's like one person who was like running like a 10 on the treadmill and the other person on the other side was running like a 9.5. So like, you know, if you've ever been on a treadmill, you hear like somebody like stomping, but they're like running fast, like I'm sandwiched in between these two individuals. So I'm on this treadmill and I'm straddling the belt and I'm thinking to myself like, I don't know how fast I need to go. So that's when I look to the left and I seen the guy was going 9.5. I look to the right and see the guy who's going 10. I'm like, seven sounds like a good number. Like if they're doing that, <laughs> like I know I can do a seven. So I get on the treadmill and I, I hit seven and the belt is running in between my legs and I get on the treadmill and like... I instantly lost my breath. I just felt like the treadmill was rejecting me, or my body was rejecting the treadmill. I couldn't figure it out. And as I'm on the treadmill and I'm like, all right, like I need to beat this. I, I put my hand out to hit pause or the stop button and I hesitated. And in that moment of hesitation, my feet left the treadmill and my shoulder hit the treadmill Oh. I fail. So now like I'm like trying to get up, I'm trying to like not make a scene and like hoping like these two gazelles next to me like won't say anything. And like I grabbed my stuff, the guy was like, hey, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I just lost balance. I get get my phone out the little cup holder and I looked at the uh, screen and it was only 30 seconds. So I am devastated. And as I'm walking home, tears in my eyes, I reached out to the door of my right hand. I have this tattoo on my wrist and it says no struggle, no progress. And it that's when it hit me. I was like, "Okay, All right, universe, this is what we doing. So the next day I went back on the treadmill. And tried it again and again and again. And eventually one day I was able to run for a minute straight. Kept going, you know, five minutes straight, minutes turned to miles. And then 18 months after that whole experience, October 20, uh, 2013, I ran my first marathon in Detroit. I ran a Detroit marathon. So that, this, that was the culmination of my origin story. And during that whole process, I remember talking to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, of like, I think I'm gonna write a blog. Like, I think that's what people do these days. Like, I don't know. Like, I think I'm just going to like write about my experience. And she was like, yeah, like, yeah, you should do that. And I remember I like, I'm going to call it 300 pounds and running. It's like, I like that. And I, I started to write this blog. And at first it was just my, my mom, my girlfriend, and a couple of friends who was reading it. And then as I continued to share my journey and talk about my experiences of like running As a 300 pound plus man, I just started to get, you know, more attention and notoriety of this thing. And it kind of just grew from there. And that was what, 10 years ago to what you see now where, you know, Adidas athlete, I'm I'm currently finishing up my first book um, that's going to be published next year. You know, I I have also founded Slow Jeff Run Club that has, you know, over, you know, 8,000 uh, other slow runners, you know, so many things that just came from this one experience of uh, the doctor calling me fat and me taking that spite and that anger and like literally turning shit into sugar.
1: Okay. So you get shamed and humiliated by your provider mm-hmm. and you take that and go buy running shoes that same day. Yes. And Shortly after you started a blog documenting that where he didn't even, he thought you running was the stupidest thing ever. Yes. So is this reflective of your personality and how you approach life's challenges? Or was it out of character?
0: This is, this is my personality. You tell Martinez he can't do something. Martinez is going to find a million ways why he can. And it just came from just growing up in the adversity I had to take throughout my life. You know, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan you know, on the east side of Detroit, you know, before the age of 10, I had two brothers who was already passed. So I had a brother Mm -hmm. who died by suicide, but I also had a brother who was killed, you know, next door was a crack house. So like, there's so many things that I had to overcome just to be where I'm in right now that, you know, a doctor that I can crush like a can telling me that I'm fat and stupid. Is not going to be the thing that's going to break me.
1: So I'm curious to social scientist, Brené Brown writes and talks about anger as a powerful catalyst, but a horrible, even toxic companion. So what that anger was a catalyst for you. I hear that. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship with anger today and how is it serving as a continued catalyst and, and where may it still be toxic for you?
0: Oh, that's a, That's an interesting question. Well, I I think with years of therapy, it it has helped. (laughs) It has helped with the anger. But one of the things that it, it that I do use it for these days as a thing of like, how can I like pump myself up? Like if I'm feeling discouraged, if I'm going through a place where I may not be feeling the most motivated to do something, I do use, you know, anger or the notion of, I don't know, fake anger to like pump myself up to do the thing I need to do. Like, I think of it like Michael Jordan and the whole last dance and how he had like this oh. running list of like people who ever done him wrong. Like it can be like, well, oh, that person looked at me wrong. And like, I'm going to use that as motivation to uh, do what I need to do. And it's the same thing, right? you know, I'm taking some of those inner voices and, or things that people have said to me and like just ruminating just for a second, just so I can get something to click in my head. People like, oh, like, oh, I need to do this. Like, oh, like this is going to be done. You know, for example, I'm writing a book, 70,000 words from Penguin Random House as a debut author. And it's been many times, you know, being in, you know, undergrad or like grad school where people Professors have told me that I'm a horrible writer and I, I'll never make it in grad school. And just taking those those words and fueling me to like write this book, to be like, hi, like you told me I'll never become nothing or uh, amount to anything. And like, look at me write this book. And that can be toxic because if you're not able to like release that and then uh-huh. move on to life, like that's where it can become toxic. And I think that's where for me, therapy has come into place to be like, all right, yes, I'm doing this and you know, I might be considered like high achieving, but like I still need to let that go to be able to live life. Like for example, I'm currently reading Will Smith's book and it it resonates to me so much of, he was telling a story about how you know, I can't remember what the number was, but it ended with an eight. Like, you know, his movie. Let's just say it it ended up being like twenty eight million dollars or whatever a box over release. And him talking to his agents, like, so why do you not think we didn't make thirty? And his agents like, yo, this is the, like, like we've literally made history. This is the the most grossing movie ever. And you're asking like why we didn't get to this even number of like 30 million. Like I said, it might be more than it, but like that whole notion of that. And I think that's the same thing when it comes to me and like this anger and like using that to fuel myself instead I like, all right, like once I get started to the thing I need to do, I need to realize that like it's not real anymore and I need to, wow. to move on from it in order to like live a happy and healthy life. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is a tricky one, right? Cause it is such a powerful catalyst, but it can be insidious and also keep us hooked to the people that don't deserve our time and our energy or even care about our well-being. well-being. Yes. And so it's such an important thing to keep in check. And I, I really appreciate that because we all have our lists, right? We all have a list of like, I'll show you. But then if we arrive at that place and you're like, Oh, it was just to prove them wrong. It feels empty. But if it has, it has to be something more, right. It has to be something more.
0: And that's the, that's the thing, right. Cause a lot of people always ask me, like, you know, when you ran that marathon, they like, did you go back to that doctor and like, like when <laughs> his face and then <laughs> tell him like, screw you, man. And, you know, most people like my answer shocks though. It's like, no, like at this point, it's been 10 years. Like, yeah, you know, there have been times where I think about like trying to find this doctor, but like, it's not what drive me anymore. It's not what really fuels me. And like, I just think it would just be a zero sum game to come back mm-hmm. years later and be like, hi, like you told me I was fat and dumb. Like, here's this race medal and all the race medals. And like, this guy has moved on with life. I didn't moved on with life. Like, there's no point to do that, right? And I did find some of that emptiness when I ran my first marathon. So at like, you know, from that day when I came into that doctor to like 18 months afterwards, when I ran this first marathon, it was all to like, have something to prove like I'm not fat and I'm not dumb or like, you know, those things to run that marathon, like cross the finish line and instantly become sad. Like I was sad. Like this was to the point where I was like, I don't know if I'm even gonna run anymore. That's more than
1: sad. Yeah. Uh, what what else was what else was going that on was, there? Was it grief or
0: acid. grief, depression? Yeah. I think all of those things, right? And there's a, a word coined for it. I think it's called a post race blues or marathon blues. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I experienced that and I've never experienced that in my life. Of course, it took me a couple months to, like, get over there or to, like, grieve and, like, go through that process. But after that, you know, I was a year and a half past meeting that doctor. I didn't find other doctors and, you know, people who were going to support me that, you know, at that point, I was like, this this is not sustainable. I need to find a new way.
1: It's not sustainable. Yeah, it's such interesting when you work so hard to achieve something, but that even that like even races have to be connected to something bigger for you. What? Well, let me just shift to my other because I feel like this is part of it because you mentioned the running club you started slow AF. Mm-hmm. I love how you talk about this on your website, right? It's you know, it's for the runners and the walkers in the back. And I'm like, yes, you celebrated it. Instead of it having to be a thing of shame to shrink from, it's something to celebrate. Yes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges in setting up or starting your company, 300 pounds of running and this community for runners, Slow AF. What are some of the biggest challenges in starting your business in that community? Oh, man,
0: I would say one of the biggest challenges is myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Or what oh, do
0: you mean? You're, you can be your own self your own enemy and like your best cheerleader ever. And (laughs) as I'm like, as I'm writing this blog, right. It's a thing of like writing and some of those notions that have fueled me, like, you know, professors telling me I'm a horrible writer and things of that sort, you know, this is where if you don't keep those voices in check, it can sink in and like, Start to penetrate your mind and you start to believe those things. And I would say that that's one of the things of like self sabotage, right? You know, when people think about business or running or like even, you know, I hate to say even weight loss, like everybody's like, well, how can I, what's the quickest way to get to this thing that I need to do so I can be done? Like, what's the quickest way to get to a million dollars? And it's like, Oh, all you need to do is buy these products and then sell them, and then next mm-hmm. thing you, know, you look up and you in a you in a a, a multi level marketing scheme or something. Um, but I think the same thing could be said with like starting a business is that we are all trying to get to the destination instead of you know going the through the processes and the journey to to get there. And I think when it came to slow AF and three hundred pounds running. You know that that those are the things that came to mind. So, for example, I remember I've changed my pricing model. I don't know, at least five, six times in slowmo. And at first, like when it first happened, I just beat myself about up about it. Like, ah, yeah. oh, I'm changing this pricing model. I didn't get it right this time. You know, like what I'm going to do. And then, you know, it was the whole thing of like to me being like, all right, Martinez, like we need to think about this as a marathon. Like it's about consistently showing up and knowing that every training practice or every campaign is not going to be the the best campaign, but it's more about the sum over the course of time. Right. And I came up this notion of like thinking about these things or these actions that I'm doing as like coins into a jar that help 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 to accumulate to the sum of the whole thing. So, all right, I changed my pricing structure. All right, that's another coin to the jar. Like, I learned that this pricing structure or model wasn't the best, and I changed it again. <laughs> and again. But, you know, it, it's one of the things now where at first when I was a bit shame about it, it's more of now a thing of it's something to be proud of because it's the thing of. Constantly learning, as well as constantly trying to figure out like what what is the way that that suits me in order to get to the end. And truthfully, the members of it really enjoy it on how vulnerable I am with the process and how open I am with the process. Whereas I think other people when they they make mistakes, they try to like move past it as quickly as possible. Like, oh, I made that mistake. Like, let's just erase this. Whereas when it comes to the members in the slow F Run Club, yeah, you know, the whole example about, you know, the pricing structures, it's something that has drawn them even more closer to me as the leader of this, this club, because they they understand that I'm being vulnerable and that they 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 also get to see the veil pulled back, right? It's almost like the Wizard of Oz when people get to Oz and there was this whole buildup and then you go back and it's like, oh, he just like on a bike and like making noises and things of that sort. And like when you pull those things back and be able to talk to the members like they're actual humans to say, hey, like I'm human, I'm are all learning this together. And, you know, let's, let's, let's think of this as a journey of figuring this all out together to make this the best thing we want to be versus me keeping the veil closed and like making these decisions and mistakes and then like trying to erase them and then feel shame about them silently.
1: That's pretty powerful. So I'm, I'm hearing owning the learnings, but not having the learnings define you and the power of vulnerability in the process of your learning. And I'm wondering if there's anything else that 300 Pounds and Running and slowly AF, like Running and Leaning, those have taught you about leadership and leading not just a business, but really a movement.
0: I think one of the things that it really taught me is that people will, if you come to correct and you come to them in a way that's wholeheartedly genuine, they will go to here to the moon with you. And for me, that's leadership. And that's the way I like to serve my individuals and my followers and fans or whatever they want to call themselves. It's just being completely genuine with who I am and being genuine to them. Right. So I think about this process of me writing this book and there was maybe a three week span where I stopped talking about like running and just fitness in general. And it was just all about my book. And eventually I I pulled up and said, hold up, like, Are y'all enjoying this book writing marathon that I'm talking about here? Do you want me to continue to talk about this or do you want me just to go back to fitness? And I did a poll. And when 95% of the people was like, no, like this is a part of you and this is a part of the journey and I enjoy hearing this, it just gives me more insight to who you are as a person, like keep talking about it. So
1: what stands out to me there too, is even being open for feedback and to check things with those that you're leading and su- supporting and serving and saying, is this working for you? And being open to that, not like I have to stay the course and this is me, take it or leave it, or I got to be whoever you want me to be. It's it's almost this co-creation of this space that you're making. I love it. Yes, I love it. How how are you taking care of yourself personally? Since so, so much of the work that you do is inspired by the burdens that you've carried from your own personal story.
0: Oh, therapy. <laughs> therapy is one, and another thing is boundaries. Is another. Ooh, tell me more. So what? The, when I think about that, it's like when you think about most of these influencers or other people who use social media to like run their business, it's all encompassing. You know, their wife's name, you know, their kid's name, you know, you know, all about their family. And for me, I've just, I decided to put out boundaries and and cut out a part of my life to say, all right, like you all will get this part, but there are other parts you won't be able to get. Hmm. So for example, for a very long time, People thought I was single because <laughs> it's like, we've never seen your wife or you never talked about it. And it's like, yeah, occasionally I'll talk about it her It's like, or like, we've never seen her on social media, like on your page. And it's like, well, that's just a part of me that you all won't be able to get. And those boundaries go on into other parts of my life. Right. You know, there's a point in the day when my day starts. There's a point in my day when my day stops. And there's a point in my day where it's rest to family time, you know, hanging out with my dog, chilling out with my wife and doing things that that fills me up. So for example, massages, I just found a, a amazing massage therapist. And now every week I'm getting a massage, right? Just doing things that also fills me up. Talking with friends, right? Since I am busy, one of the things that I also done is, uh, so I won't lose connection with my friends. Is okay. Let Let's make running meetings.
1: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And I want to circle back to the boundaries piece because it's something that people talk a lot about, but they're really hard. Boundaries are hard to really concretize for you personally. And also hard to maintain. I think even harder to maintain. It's one thing to set a boundary and it's harder to maintain. How, what supports you setting and maintaining these boundaries of like keeping some things you'll share the personal, but there's some things that are just private. I hear that loud and clear. You're taking care of your relational life and your physical body, your mental well being. I hear all those things. What helps you? respect your own boundaries and maintain those and what still might get in the way of maybe you betraying your own boundaries.
0: Oh well let's start off with the things that may betray my, my own boundaries. Cause I think that's a little bit easier. <laughs> the, the thing that may betray my own boundaries is the, the insatiable desire for success. Oh gosh. And like what yes. that, what that means. Like, is it the, the money? Is it the nice cars, the house? Like, whatever that success means. So, like, that's the first thing that definitely can get in the way because there are times where, not even times, today, I was talking to my program manager and me being like, I feel like I'm just not doing enough. And before that, and then the next statement after that was, I think I'm going to have to delete email, calendar, and all social media from my phone. And That was the first thing that came to my mind. It's like, I don't know if I'm not, if if I'm doing enough, like, should I like, should I be doing more and you know, what would that even look like? And then in the next breath, you know, pause myself to be like, oh, like I need to get off of social media and email. So that's, that is definitely one thing that can get in that way is that insatiable desire. Like we all or most of us have that like that insatiable desire of like whatever, it don't matter what we are doing, it isn't enough.
1: It's like the shadow side of that drive that got you where you are today. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. It's keeping a short list with it.
0: Yes. And it's that thing of like having your I like to call it my board, like my personal board, having people that I talk to on a consistent basis that I can bounce these ideas off of to have a sanity, a sanity check. So talking to my program manager and saying that, and you know, and me being like, oh, I'm gonna get off of email and her being and, and her be like, yeah, like you're doing what you love. This is enough. Yes, let's get you off of social media and email, and you know, I'll take these over for the next couple of weeks. Right. Or I'm talking to my wife and, you know, bouncing ideas off of her or, you know, some of my friends to bounce some ideas off of them in order to a stay grounded and have that and have that sanity check. But you're a dog owner as well. So I I think for myself, the the most grounding thing that reminds me, like not to like get this stuff to my head is the morning walks or the night walks where I take with my dog. And like, so true, there's nothing more humbling than like, picking up dog poop with a plastic.
1: (laughs) True story. Yes. (laughs) Yes, you're right. And it's just the rhythm of those walks too. So you talk about success. Mm -hmm. Uh, How has your definition of success changed for you then?
0: It's an ever evolving thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think for me, at first, like success, when I started this this blog was like, oh, I need to get into a magazine. Like, I need to get into like Runner's World, and then I got there and I was like, okay, like I succeeded or, to that, but like that didn't fill me up. And that's what a, a sustainable thing come at. And it really took for me to go to therapy and like talk to my therapist and like process like what, what is this drive? Where did this come from? And like, what are you trying to serve? And what? Yeah and what and what do you really want to get out of this right and what we came up with is you know success is not necessarily a destination like success is like living it so every day in life you could be living success versus getting to that thing or that number because we know by having that insatiable drive that once we get to that number or close to that number, it, it, it would never be enough. But changing that to be like, all right, like I live in success every day. The fact that I'm able to do things that I love and enjoy is success to me now.
1: It's powerful. Is this what you thought you'd be doing with your life?
0: No, not at all. Before all this, I was literally like I said, I was in grad school and I was literally I got into a Ph.D. program for public health and I was supposed to start one year and then I asked for a extension. Because, you know, some life things happening and I asked for extension and during those life things and during talking to therapy, I remember talking to my therapist and be like, you know, I thought I wanted a Ph.D. because all my other friends had a Ph.D., And I felt like I needed to live up to the exercise, but like what I really like or enjoy is like running marathons. And if, if, if I could do anything, if I can run races, talk to people and like make a living along the way, I would enjoy that life immensely. And her be like, well, what's stopping you? and me and that light turning on of, well, I thought I needed to get a PhD because like, that's where, like, that's where all my other friends were doing. Like there was their their goals and aspirations to be a professor and like be a 10 year professor and like, you know, be in academia and like pontificating, doing all those other things. And me be like, that didn't bring me any joy. Like I felt, I felt like a little piece of me died as I was like writing scientific articles.
1: Wow. That's some data right there. <laughs> you, you mentioned in therapy, you were rumbling with what was really driving you as you were differentiating really what success was for you. Did you get, have you gotten clarity on what some of those drivers were that take you away from your values
0: and honoring your boundaries? Sort of, you know, we, we've, we've, come we come up with like a personality for this this person or oh, this, yeah? part of,
1: this part of you
0: yeah that, yeah um gets in the driver's seat right and and knowing that you know this this part of me was needed to help me get through some of the traumatic experiences that I had to get through growing up in Detroit. Yeah. And you know realizing now where i'm at now i that that part of me doesn't serve me as much as the part of me that i want to to be now and the part of, you know the part of me that i'm striving and currently going to and the part of me that i i, I value and so it's a constant battle i will not say battle but it's like a constant reminder of you know pulling myself back and having some mindfulness around who's in the driver's seat? And like constantly asking myself, like, who was in charge? Mm-hmm.
1: That's a powerful question, yeah. isn't it? It's such an essential one. Gosh, thank you for naming that. So I'm curious, when you cross the finish line of each race, what is the first thing that you say or do?
0: I'm usually looking for like some carrot cake. The <laughs> first thing. I'm usually...
1: Where's where's the carrot where's cake? The
0: carrot cake? <laughs> um, but one of the things that I I have started to do is like put together like this ritual. It's like, okay. I'm done. Let me take some pictures. Let me stay nearby and like cheer on some other people who finished after me. And then I usually go into like a recovery routine or as I like to call it where I'm rehydrating, refueling, recovering. So, you know, drinking water or electrolytes, eating It's usually carrot cake. Cause you know, my wife and I have a planned out like, all right, Here's the bakery, we're getting some carrot cake, or we already have carrot cake done. (laughs) And then the other part is just resting, but it's overall resting. So putting on the recovery boots, sitting up and reflecting about the race, right? So I'm talking to my wife about the race. Like if there was something interesting that happened or a very tough part of the race. And like, those are the things that we do when we talk about, right? So for example, recently just ran Boston Marathon And it was a tough race. Seventy-five degrees, 88% humidity, which is which is that's right it's a rough start to the race. And the race was so humid throughout that whole race that I ran out of like electrolytes, I ran out of the stuff that I had and I'm using like the Gatorade and things of that sort, but that wasn't enough. And I remember telling my wife, like, I had to go to the medical tents and get like bone broth from them because like the amount of salt that was alongside of my face and like, you know, telling her this story of like, like, wow, like I wouldn't think you had to go through that. Like, so what, what did you do? And I was like, (laughs) for every medical thing I seen, I stopped and I got some broth and she was like, well, what if they didn't have broth? And I was like, it's funny that you asked because one of the tents didn't have broth. So they gave me a cup of water and two bouillon cubes and told me to stick a bouillon cube in the back of my in the back of my jaw and sip on this water. And, and I was like, it was the most saltiest thing that I've had in my life. And we laughed about it. We joked about it. But, you know, it's now you know, it's now the fact of like being able to share those tough parts of a race or or experience in a journey. And be able to, like, it wasn't funny then, but I can sit back and laugh on it. Like, who would have thought that, you know, I would need to, like, suck on a bouillon cube to, like, continue this race? But I did.
1: Is that going to make it into the book? The bouillon cube story? It might.
0: I'm trying to figure out what I'm going <laughs> to
1: that. That's a good one.
0: When is your next race? That's interesting. I just found out I got into the New York City half. So Ooh, that's it. Congratulations. Thank you so that's in march and and then back to back and then i found out i got into the chicago marathon and i think mm-hmm. i believe that's in october.
1: well, wow, new york really comes out for these races. Yes. All right, i've got some quick fire questions okay. for you, martinez. Okay. I know you i know you're writing a book, mm-hmm. but what are you reading right now?
0: Uh, Will by Will Smith.
1: What is your favorite quote or a mantra you say a lot?
0: Just keep moving. <laughs>
1: What song is on repeat for you these days?
0: Oh, my God. There's so many of them. I would say Till I Collapse from Eminem is. (laughs) I just love that you have Eminem.
1: What is an unpopular opinion that you hold?
0: Sugar belongs in grits.
1: Sugar belongs in grits. Yes. Okay. And who inspires you to be a better leader and human?
0: My future self.
1: Mm, Well, that's a word. Martinez, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time from writing your book to join me on the Unburdened Leader podcast today. I got so much out of it, and I know those that are listening are going to have a, whole, a full heart from listening to you share your story and your heart. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: We absorb at an early age the messages of what it means to be enough from culture, from our family, And we learned early in our school experiences that being different was dangerous and value was based on a set of behaviors and looks that excluded many of us. It was also prime space where we learned to perform and fit in to feel enough, knowing punishment and alienation were the risks of not meeting these standards. Now these experiences leave us with the burden of shame and then shape how we show up in all aspects of life. The burdens of shame and humiliation also leave us with the beliefs that we're not worthy, that we're not enough, and they rob us of the truth that our worthiness is never up for negotiation and is never something to be earned. When hooked by these burdens, nothing feels enough, no matter how hard you work or what you achieve. And so when you end up delegating your worth, you end up chasing your enough through relentless hustling and proving. Unaddressed, you end up chasing feeling enough and doing enough and having enough, but still never getting the relief you're seeking. Today, Martinez shared with us how he worked with the burdens of shame and pain, so he did not collude with the toxic messages that said his worth was up to others to decide. Just by showing up as he was, a black man in a larger body, he faced and continues to face stigma and the burdens of diet culture from the doctor's office to the starting line of a race where people make presumptions of his health, his work ethic, and his motivations. But he knew his worth was not connected to these beliefs and leaned into his mantra of no struggle, no progress when things were hard. And he also reminded us the importance of ongoing personal therapy, really good boundaries, and a great team to support him and catch the echoes of the burdens of shame and trauma when they start to drive him in search of his enough instead of just informing him and his meaningful work. So let me ask you, as you reflect on today's episode, are you looking for your worth and worthiness in your work or what other people think of you? What experiences in your life impact how you see yourself and connect with your worthiness? Is your relationship with health and your body perpetuating stigma and diet culture or moving you towards true health? Now, this probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, we don't get through this life unscathed. Shame and the burdens of not enough are therefore so prevalent, along with the many ways we try to protect ourselves from being taken out by this pain. But the challenge is how we respond to these burdens, not really overcome them, because part of living a courageous life, a brave life, an unburdened leader life is being all in with love and caring. And putting ourselves out there. So making a lifelong commitment to understand these burdens so you can let them inform you instead of lead you is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries, and your enough Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't wanna lose focus, When you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make the hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, find these show notes and this episode along with free Unburdened Leader resources and ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.